Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. So last week, Reed, we did the first part of the Captain C.J. Carlisle interview that focused primarily on his prior enlisted experience as a security forces airman. Highly encourage any of you who are joining us for the first time to go back and listen to that first part as it will set the stage for the rest of the interview as C.J. moves into receiving his commission and becoming an officer in the Air Force. Oh, yeah. If you haven't listened to it, please, you owe it to yourself. CJ seems like a great guy. Great episode. I really enjoyed it. So with that, once again, Captain CJ Carlisle. Let's go back a little bit and let's get into some detail about your officer experience. Your explanation of your enlisted experience is awesome, but obviously this is the Air Force Officer Podcast, and so we want to we got to talk some officer stuff. So first up, you mentioned that you were selected into space operations and you love it, that you're excited about being in operations, but talk to us. What is space operations? What is the 13 Sierra career field? Okay. So, you know, 13 Sierra career field and space operations, and there's a couple different new shred outs now that you can look up on the officer classification directory as far as like orbital warfare and some other ones that I can't rename off the top of my head just because they're all so new. But basically, that community, as far as ops goes, we have a couple different missions. Obviously, we have a ton of satellites. The Air Force and Air Force Space Command, we're one of the major command when it comes to command and control C2 elements for space assets for DOD. And uh, the Army does some things. Obviously, and every branch who uses these assets have operators who do that. But ultimately, we are responsible for the entire, you know, we call them weapon systems or birds or satellites, if you will. And broad explanation is you're checking the health of these satellites. You're looking to see if the satellite's operating within its parameters on what needs to be done. You're checking those telemetry points, and telemetry is like just health of a satellite data coming down. And uh, you're making sure everything's operating the way it's supposed to be. And if any users are on the satellites and they're having issues, they'll contact whoever's in charge of that satellite and maybe we can help them work through those issues. You work with a lot of different civilians, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, a lot of the contracting companies that we obviously work through for that stuff. And uh, with everything with Space Force, obviously our focus is changing if anybody out there, you know, you're listening and you're interested in space, I highly recommend seeing the 60 Minutes. Uh, it was called it's called War in Space. There's a 60 Minutes episode on there that really gets into some of the stuff that was classified prior to that episode even airing about where we're going as a space community and and what the realm is. Uh, the term that they're using is contested, degraded, and operationally limited environment. They call it a CDO environment, and uh, because obviously when you're up there and you have a satellite in space and something goes wrong with it, who's going to fix it? 
if it's a part that needs to be replaced, nobody's going to be able to do it because it's in space. So, you know, they're trying to work those things. And so obviously other cool missions that go with that, right. Flying the X 37 Bravo and things like that. So. Awesome. So, um, you kind of got into it a little bit, but let's flesh this out. Why does the 13 Sierra space operations officer career field exist? Well, 80% of our career fields all STEM majors. So you need these engineers and these officers to be able to, to, to really think outside the box when it comes to troubleshooting satellites. Cause like I said, if something goes wrong with a satellite and something breaks, we're the ones that are responsible for trying to figure out a way to fix it or bypass what's going on and we can bypass a part via commands. But we work a lot with uh, obviously civilians. So I think one, when it comes to like just the ownership of it, it's kind of similar to how the air force was birthed from the army. When you think about people to have the air mindedness and, you know, back then with the army air corps, how we're going to win battles. Now we need space officers to start developing a space mindedness, right? And then, and where's that going to go? Where's that lead us? And we need to start thinking further down in the future. And I think ultimately while we're there obviously is there's a lot of talent in air force when it comes to technology and trying to advance, use that technology to give us that edge that we need to stay superior in all aspects, right? Aerospace, cyberspace, and all that. People say those things, it sounds cheesy when everybody's screaming it, but it's the absolute truth, right? And uh, ultimately, that's what I think why we're, you know, we're space officers. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it exactly that, like you said, it sounds cheesy, you know, fighting, winning in airspace and cyberspace. Turns out that it's not just a cheesy catchphrase, but that's like the official directed mission of the air force from afi 1-1 and your career field the 13 sierra space operations officer is responsible for that space piece of it yeah and i think uh previously right when people take uh that realm of what the air force is in charge of a lot of people take it for granted i mean everybody who uses their gps on their phones all that data comes from our GPS constellations at the Air Force, make sure it's always up and running. And up until that point, nothing, there was really no reason for us to even think anything bad could happen. But if you look at some of the recent events in the past six years with different countries showing their capabilities of being able to shoot a satellite out of its orbit and completely annihilate it with a missile from the ground, that speaks volumes to where our adversaries are trying to be. And it also speaks volumes to us on how our thinking needs to start shifting on what are we going to be doing, right? And I think that culture is something that was really important with to General Hyten, uh, General Raymond, and all of them. And that's why the push so hard for the Space Force to be its own thing really came about because we need to start shifting our focus and our mission solely for that to try and change what everybody else is perception of what we do in space is changing even if people don't realize it the fight is getting getting out there and we need to stay ahead of the game if we want to you know still continue to be the greatest country and the greatest military on the planet yeah absolutely so you kind of mentioned this a little bit as well that a lot of the space operations officers have 
some sort of STEM degree. So can you speak to why someone who is interested in becoming a space operations officer would need a STEM degree? How do they go about getting this career field? Is it, is it highly competitive? What's that process like? I mean, it's highly competitive in, in the sense that, yeah, you need a STEM degree. If you really want to have a chance of getting selected for a space operations billet, a 13th Sierra billet, you really need to get that STEM degree. And other career fields might not go as in-depth, but I'm not, I can't really speak to that because I, I haven't worked other career fields. But what I can speak to is when I went to space operations, we were looking at diagrams of satellite parts and how these components worked with each other. And I didn't have an engineering background. My STEM degree was aeronautical. So I never really looked at engineering schematics or anything of that nature. So a lot of that stuff just looked like a foreign language to me. I really had to get tight with some of my peers and say, hey, man, walk me through this. How's this component work? And you're really looking at the blueprint of that stuff and really need to have some type of education to be able to read those things. So that's one of the reasons why. Plus needing to understand the physics of orbits. Exactly. Like mathematics, uh, orbital mechanics, and how we develop maneuvers and things like that. There is a lot of math involved. And yes, you know, the formulas are usually typed up and done by other engineers from other officers in the career field. And, and, and they can work that math for you. And you just kind of plug and chug sometimes. But ultimately, you, you still need to be able to know what you're looking at to make sure that, hey, is this right? instead of just hoping that somebody else did their job, right? And I tell you what, the airmen in this career field on the space side of the house, they will blow you away. If you become a 13 Sierra and you come in and you, you know, obviously you have a higher education of engineering and stuff, but how smart that the airmen you get to work with is amazing. I love that part. Yeah. You're talking about the satellite operators. Oh yeah. Yeah, ground system operators, because sometimes they'll work directly with like a tracking station or something. And they'll shoot all the ground nodes and everything that works with the system, like the computer and what the computer's hooked up to and troubleshoot those. But they're actually getting a lot more involved with the vehicles as well, just because they are so intelligent and they're not inside this box of education. So their thinking is so outside of it when they're trying to troubleshoot things. It's amazing. And like you said, this is a commission, Ed, but they blow me away. Hey, it- Part of being a space operations officer is knowing what your people do and yeah. so that you can lead them so you can better execute the mission by knowing what it is that they are actually doing. So knowing who your airmen are is still part of the commission ed piece of it. Yeah, it's awesome to see. Cool. So who is the customer for what you do? Is it me and my iPhone? and the GPS capability that's on there or not exactly. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about GPS because I was a Millsatcom guy, but what I do know about GPS is that that data is provided to other companies completely free of charge and those companies use that. So yes, if we want to stretch it, then yes, you are the customer if you're using the data, right? But we provide that data to the companies who have the software that take that data, take the, all those ones and zeros that comes down and, and, put it on their maps and do all that. So there are customers and then you guys are like a third party customer. Military satellite communication is a little different, right? All that is encrypted satellite comps. So no civilians are really using that. Most of that is like ground users, like the army, 
Navy, all the teams that we have on the ground or in the air, you know, our pilots use it. President of the United States, when he needs a secure line, he uses those satellites. So things like that. So is it primarily a communications function then? Yeah, for MILSATCOM. Yeah, primarily it's just strictly encrypted satellite communications. Okay, so really going back to why your AFSC exists is that you're providing a special avenue for communication between warfighters, their higher headquarters, enabling them to project fires downrange, right? Correct. It's used in a couple other ways as well, so, but... But that gets into the classified stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a great career field. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing for, for our audience to know is anytime you start talking about satellite capabilities and things that the Air Force is, or that now the Space Force, excuse me, is able to do is that everything gets highly classified very, very quickly. And obviously we are not going to discuss classified information on, on this podcast. Right. <laughs> So the warfighter is the end user. They're the, the customer. You're facilitating their ability to communicate. What other Air Force specialty codes, officer, enlisted, what other career fields do you work closely with in that regard? Intel. Intel is huge um, in the space side. We work a lot with Intel. I mean, that's most of it is Intel. We have some users, that, obviously the ground users, which we already talked about. The Army has users that operate the payload on some of the satellites that we use. Obviously, we work with pilots and all of that, right? But most of that is worked through some, some we call, you know, Patchware, who, who's kind of like that liaison in between the space community and whoever, whatever customer that they need and what assets, and they advise them on what assets are available and how to utilize those assets and things like that. But me coming from you know, very limited space experience in my two years in military satellite communications squadrons, I really only worked with directly Intel, right? And then obviously our customers who were the ground users and whoever else needed satellite communication. Do you ever work with the space launch folks? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. So 13 Sierras do, uh, if, if you're assigned to like a range operation squadron, you'll have an opportunity to work with companies like SpaceX or NASA or uh, ULA. I personally haven't had that, those opportunities. I do know some people who have worked range ops, but yeah, you get a lot of opportunities working with those civilian companies. Is that usually like a way for you to like build a network and possibly line up a job for post military career is that pretty normal oh yeah i'd say that's pretty common i've seen multiple not only officers but enlisted airmen fulfill their contract with the air force or their service commitment and transition one of these agencies and uh, do really well for themselves i think space force will probably have a retention issue when it comes to that because of all the companies that they get to work with and, and all the opportunities. Cause they're going to say, Oh man, I really like what this guy does. He's absolutely crushing it. You know, this girl, she's the best operator I've ever seen. How would you like a job? You know, it's all going to be job offers just out of the control. My buddy, one of my really close friends, pals chased, and now he's made himself pretty much indisposable in this position because he's developed certain things. He's like a math genius. So and now he gets paid a lot of money as a contractor. Right. 
I imagine that the same is true or similar with, with NASA. You'll partner with NASA pretty closely and that can line up with either actually being detailed to NASA or finding a job within. Yeah, I'm sure it probably is there. The only reason I say this is because I've never, I've never worked with or seen NASA because working at Schriever, it's not really where NASA is. Most of the companies that we work with at Schriever are like Boeing and Lockheed Martin. But I know that the launch sites, like in down in Florida, the Cape Canaveral, and then Vandenberg Air Force Base, that's where everybody pretty much launches their missiles. So they probably get a lot more hands-on, and, and those opportunities, I'm sure, they're just like... But NASA will put out emails as well into the space community every now and again, and they'll say, hey, we're looking for some positions opening up. Could be astronaut or whatever, and they'll send it out, and they'll give you what they're looking for on qualifiers, on what type of qualifications you need to have, and then people will submit packages and see what happens. And that's probably going to become even more common as the Space Force continues to grow. You mentioned earlier that they're potentially looking for volunteers to come into the Space Force, and they may get similar opportunities like the 13 Sierra to work with these different space-related companies or with NASA directly. So yeah, it sounds like there's some really great opportunities coming up with the Space Force. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, history is happening right now. Like it's crazy for us to be living in this moment in time to be able to see it. I tell all my buddies that I commissioned with, you know, the ones that are non-prior, some of my best friends. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm envious of your youth and how much you're going to get to see and do across your Air Force career. It's, it's really exciting. And, and I try and stress that to the cadets too. I mean, not only the space community, not just 13th year, that pretty much applies to any Air Force specialty code that you're going to be going into as a commissioned officer. You need to be thinking like, if that is something that you're interested in, they're probably going to need that, right? So those opportunities are going to be there and everybody's going to be part of that history that's going on. So really exciting time to be in Air Force ROTC, being in the Air Force and looking to commission. Yeah. So let's talk about that. This is something I've been wanting to ask you. Knowing your background, you came up through the enlisted ranks, security forces. You've moved into now the, the Space Force as an officer, but also for the last three years, you've been working in Air Force ROTC developing cadets. So here's my question for you, CJ. Okay. How do we develop, prepare, train space officers, specifically with regards to their warrior ethos, when you know that the type of war fighting that they're going to be involved in, they don't get the benefit of seeing their enemy directly. In fact, they're not even going to be in the, the battle space. So how do we develop that type of war fighting mentality within those officers? Well, great question. And I think the Air Force is actually already looking at that. One of my mentors, he was recently part of the developmental team, and he just recently had a trip to Maxwell Air Force Base, kind of proposing all these avenues where we need to start inserting that space curriculum, right? I think AFROTSI, the Academy, and OTS – all these commissioning sources are going to start and even and probably in the enlisted schools as well that are going to be working 
in those realms. A lot of that curriculum is kind of in the works right now to try and start to put that into what we're trying to do. Because like you said, we need to establish a mindset. People need to be cognizantly thinking about how their mission is affected by this or that or what happens, asking those questions. Well, if this happens, what should I be doing? What is available to me? What assets do I have? How do those assets impact the user? How does that impact our mission? Is there a way, a workaround to complete those missions? And uh, I think the Air Force is already looking into implementing the new curriculum for that to try and change it. And we're going to have to see how it goes from there, right? Uh, But that's where we start. It all starts kind of at the educational level and the entry level of what we do things to try and develop those mindsets. The reason I ask the question is, historically, the way that we've developed warrior ethos is we put a trainee or a cadet through some sort of like field type experience. We teach them marching. We teach them field leadership and different types of skill sets, you know, things that are generally applicable in the type of battle space that they might find themselves in. Obviously, marching is a holdover from ancient history and up through the, the Civil War and marching was the way that you actually fought, right? Right. Clearly, that no longer serves a purpose as a military tactic, but it still is valuable in training, in helping someone to develop that discipline, that that warrior mindset, that ethos. But is that still going to be true? Is that still the case for space, where you're never going to march in space, (laughs) right? Right. Or teaching self-aid and buddy care in a high-pressure, care-under-fire type situation that still has some applicability even within the Air Force. Right. But not in the Space Force. (laughs) So you see where I'm going with this is that how do you teach someone who's never going to actually be in combat, their physical body in combat, how do you teach that warrior ethos? Oh, man. That's a tough question, right? And like you said, you know, you put these cadets in those situations and you're trying to show them and instill that warrior ethos. I, th- I think some of that would still apply, even though they might not ever be there, to try and just have to gain an understanding on what the customer is going to be going through, right? And how important the mission is to achieving what they're doing, right? Because when you're talking about the self-aid buddy care and what they're doing and the field training exercises and everything like that and all that stuff that still applies, right? They need to have a general understanding on what's going on and how that mission relates to what they're doing, how what they're trying to achieve and the tools that they're trying to give the users to use to get that, right? Because if you if we start dissecting those moments in, in military operations and urban terrain exercises and everything like that, you know, we got these guys calling in nine lines, right? Those nine lines are getting called in on communications. Those communications are linked to satellites. I think while it might seem pointless, it does have some value to it when it comes to be empathetic to the person that's actually in those positions, right? And that's how you would try to instill it. And I think deployments are still going to be a thing uh, for space operators, obviously not to the level of what other career fields are going to do, 
But being downrange and seeing some of that stuff, I think, is, is a huge motivator, too, in developing the, that mindset. Drill, I feel like we're never going to get away from. I personally love drill, and I, and I know that we don't normally use it in active duty, but we do use it for every ceremony that we ever do, right? <laughs> we use it poorly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's not very well executed most of the time, unless it's like honor guard or, or stuff like that, but... I do like the discipline aspect of drill. Is it something that we're going to get away from? I don't think so. I think that's something that is going to be involved in our training and how we develop our airmen and and military members all the time just because it does instill that level of discipline, but it doesn't serve a purpose as far as like what we do on the active duty side of the house. But back to the mindset, I think that's like why that would still – be important for a space operator to learn, right? Because they're going to need to know and, and really have an understanding of what our users and what those customers could be facing over there. Yeah, I think that's a really important point and one that I hadn't fully considered before is going through this process of developing a warrior ethos is not necessarily for you directly. I mean, it may be for for some different positions, but it's ultimately important that you develop the empathy or maybe if not empathy, at least an appreciation right. for what that end user, that infantry soldier is going through as they're the ones that stay on the ground, but do all of their communications through the, the satellites that, that you're providing. Right. You take any one of those aspects away on what they're trying to, when they're trying to execute, you know, it is life and death, not for the person who's working the asset, but it's for the user. So you have to know that, that and be responsible for those things. So, Yeah, I really like that. I'm very interested to see with the Space Force coming online and officers and enlisted being directly assessed into the Space Force. Yeah, there's a lot of work that really needs to be done and established with, between the cultures. And like you already said, like, what are we going to be training? How are we going to develop those mindsets? And and how do you really hit home how important the mission is to these airmen who really sometimes it takes a little bit more for some airmen to really grasp that, yes, I am sitting at a computer and, yes, what I'm doing can be very repetitive and boring at times, but how important it is for them to be there to do the best at what they're trying to do so we can provide the best possible product for the user, for the customer. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how that all develops over the next five, 10, 50 years of the growth of the Space Force. Yeah, definitely a lot of work that needs to be getting done. I know there's a ton of chatter on it. The space community really wants to just establish a good culture up front, and they're really looking at a lot of different avenues, and I think that's really important. And and even though I laugh about, I saw like, what song are we going to have? I'm like, oh, man, uh, we got some bigger fish to fry. But if somebody wants to take that on, more power to them. And there is a lot of work to get done, and I'm excited to see it as well. I'm really interested in what direction we're going to try and go for that and continue to watch it once I reach retirement. Well, there's a quote out there. Maybe you've heard it before, and I can't remember exactly who said it, but it goes something like this. Culture eats strategy for lunch. You know, you got to have the culture in place in order to have strategy actually be able to form and function properly because if the culture is not right you've been in units where or worked with people where the culture the the social the brain piece of it (laughs) the human element was not right right 
and that got in the way of the operation that got in the way of the success of the mission. Right. And so I understand what you're saying that it seems like there are some other more important things that have to get taken care of, but establishing a culture that's specific and right for the space force, I think is absolutely correct. I'm also speaking as an academic, as someone who is pursuing a PhD in a very cultural type field. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what I want to know now is, you know, we, we touched on your career field, but I want to know how you have developed as an officer, regardless, irrespective of your career field. What was your training like? You talked a little bit about OTS. You're a, an instructor in Air Force ROTC, but just in general, you know, what has been your approach to develop as an Air Force officer slash what has been your approach for developing other uh, potential officers in your cadets? Okay. So the transition over from NCO to officer was completely different, right? And I knew coming from that side of the house that I really wanted to get to know my airmen first. And then also, like we tell every second lieutenant, right, you find those squared away NCOs and you absorb that like a sponge. And that was one of the first things I really did. Because even though I had all this experience as a, you know, 13-year security forces, I didn't know jack about space. I didn't know jack about space operations. I didn't know nothing about the culture. I didn't know how the airmen worked. I don't really know what the responsibilities were. So when it came to that aspect, like I really still needed that mentorship, that guidance from my enlisted guys. And I knew that. So, and that was just a benefit of me coming from that side. I I knew I wasn't going to take them for granted. So I found a really squared away NCO kind of just latched onto him, you know, and talked to him and learned what their responsibilities were, what they do and how that work schedule is impacting on their personal life. And, and then now I'm starting, now that generates my thought process on, okay, how can I make that better while we're here and what can I do and developing that. And then for leadership things, I'm one of those guys that like, I get it. Like master's degrees are super important in education. But for me on that side, I didn't feel like it was going to help me be a better leader. Right. So I started reading more books. I've been a terrible book reader uh, my entire enlisted, I mean, my whole life, like I, if it wasn't on TV or if it wasn't in a movie, I really didn't want anything to do with it. Or in your verbal packet, right? Right. Or in that verbal packet, right? I, I hated reading. I've always kind of been more of a slow reader. Math has always been something I, I enjoy more. But now as an officer, I'm trying to read more books. Uh, some of the books that I'm reading, right? well, I finished uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, which I think is a great book when it comes to talking about that mental fortitude of, of pushing yourself every time you, you hit a wall of adversity and how you need to keep pushing forward and making sure that you're getting out and doing the things that even though you don't want to do, you do them anyway, because you, you know, one, it needs to get done, but two, you need to develop a habit of that, of doing the things that you don't want to do because that's going to make you a better person, a better officer, a better leader. And, and that book kind of helped me with that. Actually reading a book right now by Grant Cardone, I'm about halfway through. It's called uh, Sell or Be Sold. Now, if nobody follows real estate or anything like that, um, Grant Cardone's really big in real estate and things like that, but it's not just about real estate. He's talking in the book. He talks a lot about how we are constantly selling ourselves during the day. 
and you have to constantly sell something, right? Us as leaders, we are constantly selling the mission to the airmen because we want them to completely be bought into the mission. That way, they know, I know that they're putting their best effort into that. And how do you do that, right? You have to be completely bought into the mission yourself. If you are doing something in a career field that you don't feel strongly about, you need to really get back to reevaluate what your mission is and really start to buy into that. So, cause your airmen will see right through you. Right. And that's kind of the aspect now that I'm looking at on, I am completely bought in. I've been bought into the air force and space, but uh, never really thought about it in a selling aspect. And that's kind of cool. Also, you know, just reading a couple other books uh, I read in everyone culture when I first got here at air force ROTC, which was kind of how I got, my start into reading was my deck commander was like, you need to read this book. If you're going to be an air force ROTC, I want you to read this book. You know, I read it and I thought it was really interesting and how, you know, involving everyone and getting those ideas and, and all those aspects and things that we talk about air force really helped me out. So my development is coming from a lot of leadership books that I'm just trying to pick up and, and, and read and try and take what I, what I already know that I kind of do. And then also my bad habits that I have, and working around those, right? Like one of my biggest bad habits is, is putting admin work off, right? I hate it. And uh, in the operational Air Force, I could shine in aspects of managing a team and doing some certain things and motivating my team to do great. But if you came and looked at my file system, or it'd be an absolute mess, right? But in the operational Air Force, you're not going to look at that tight, right? And ROTC, everybody's looking at everything, so you can't hide that. So working on those, I think that's kind of David Goggins made me have to really give myself a, an honest look and give myself an honest answer on, am I doing what, I'm, what I need to be doing in the areas that I'm really weak at? So I'm going to continue to keep reading. Um, I'm looking forward to going to SOS just for networking purposes. And, and I know some people, they get really, oh, I didn't learn anything, blah, blah, blah. Well, you didn't learn anything because you didn't want to. If you want to learn something, you can take the worst class that you ever sat in and you can take something from that class, but you have to be open-minded, take it from the instructor, right? Because I think every instructor who's out there trying to teach, they're, all, they're trying to get something through to the student, whether they're super good at it or terrible at it. There's something to take from that. There's something to learn. So having that mindset of like, I'm going to learn something from from every experience or opportunity that I have, regardless of me thinking it's great or me thinking it might be the worst thing ever. I'm going to try and take something from that. And I'm not going to have that negative attitude because then you put that wall up where you just don't even want to learn. So if you go somewhere, a class TDY of any sorts, and you come back from that and you're like, man, I didn't learn anything. Well, why? That's your fault. So that's kind of where I'm at. That's how I'm trying to develop my leadership, how I'm trying to be a better leader, right? And uh, kind of the attitude I keep taking forward on through the Air Force. Yeah, listeners of this podcast will know that we promote the idea of professional reading quite a bit, that I feel especially that our commissioning sources don't do a very good job of of requiring professional reading. And so... We're trying to uh, push that here, pushing personal development and professional development through reading. So I really like that you brought up some books. I have not read, can't hurt me, but I have listened to various different podcasts with David Goggins on it and he is phenomenal. 
his experiences, you know, the type of personal leadership that he has developed for himself, I think is absolutely amazing and speaks very well to kind of what we were talking about before about how to develop a warrior ethos and that desire to you know, really push yourself beyond your own perceived limits. So yeah, highly recommend to our audience that they pick up a book. And if you're interested in looking up Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, we'll certainly link that here in the show notes. So I'm also interested to know, CJ, how you have communicated that type of leadership development to your cadets while you've been in Air Force ROTC. What has that experience been like? Well, it's been great, right? I try and take the curriculum that, you know, AFROTC headquarters goes down. And then a lot of times I'll make sure that I'm covering those bases that big Air Force wants us to cover, right? But then I also really apply everything that I do, that I've seen, that I've done in my classes. I'm super transparent with who I am as, a, as an officer, as a leader with my cadets. They know me very personally. I think they that I'm pretty approachable. I would like to think I am, right? But who really knows? But uh, I don't know, CJ. You scared the bejeebus out of me. <laughs> yeah, in field training, I'm sure I'm super scary. Uh, I got that feedback too. But uh, at the debt, it's a different animal. And my cadets come see me when they need something, and I'll take that as a good sign. Like I said, just like how I talked about what books I'm reading, as I'm reading those books, I t- if I see something in a chapter uh, that really sticks to me, I'll try and make sure that I can apply it in some type of lesson. Uh, I talk about it, talk to how it applies to what we do as leaders and how we need to be whatever the material is covering and how that transfers over to what you're doing active duty, actively as a leader, plus all the experiences that, that I have when I talk about just core values in general too, just for an example, right? Uh, you know, we talk about integrity being that base foundation for core values for everybody. And I, I tell my cadets, you know, integrity, yes, it means doing the right thing when nobody's looking. It means also standing by what you believe in, if you believe it to be right. Things aren't always black and white. There's a lot of gray in there. And there's a lot of times as a leader, you need to figure out what you're doing when it comes to taking care of your airmen. And it, is your airmen messing up? And then how do you handle that? One, you got to take care of your airmen. You got to be doing the right things. But some people might want to go completely left field and, and take a strike from this airman when maybe you feel like he doesn't deserve it. And that integrity will fall in that line of you saying, well, no, I don't feel that way. This is how it needs to do. And you need to stand up for what's right. Telling them that, that you're not always saying, okay, I'm going to hammer this guy or whatever. And that's just a small example of how I touch on certain things and from real world. And then I'll give them an example on where I was in a position of, whatever we're talking about, how that worked out real world for me. And maybe sometimes I totally screwed the pooch on it. I probably done it different, right? I had an airman who consistently late and, uh, and I'm like, I hate, I, I don't like doing paperwork. I felt like paperwork was always as an NCO. I never gave paperwork. I always took time. I took personal time. I would say, Oh, okay. You know, you want to be late. Okay. Well, I'll see you Saturday for a couple hours, right? That always seemed to work for me. And then one time I really didn't have that opportunity. I just had a baby. I I didn't have that kind of time to to give up. So I just kept talking to him, telling him, don't be doing this. Don't be doing that. Well, he consistently kept doing it and he always had an excuse, right? And it's always an excuse. Well, I should have started documenting that early on 
and th- those are those are things that I've learned and picked up as a leader that you really start documenting that stuff too. Because then when I tried to give him paperwork, it was like, well, this is his first time being late, and I'm like, no, no, it's not, it's not. You know, and they're like, well, you should have documented it, right? So things that you learn when you're in those experiences, I try to make sure that my guys kind of get that same viewpoint and hopefully it sticks with them. Like, cause sometimes I'll teach a lesson and that lesson goes into 400 and then my deck commander, Colonel Emery will be like, man, they were terrible. And I was like, I taught them that. I swear I did. How'd they brain dump it? But there I got to go back and think to myself, well, how did I make it stick? How did I make it stick? Cause that, then I take it personal. I'm like, well, that's on me. Maybe I didn't do it right. No, I think that's a really important aspect that you're highlighting here is that you can't like fire and forget. You got to follow up with them. You got to document the deviations from the behavior and you got to take the onus on yourself to make sure that they are actually learning the thing that you're trying to teach them. I love that you would give up a Saturday to spend time with that airman because they're not just noticing the punishment on their own schedule, but they're noticing that it's having an impact on somebody else. And you are taking full up ownership for the instruction that, and the correction of that airman. The same is true for the cadets when you teach them that you're trying to reassess yourself and saying, hey, what role do I play in this? In not just delivering the information, but ensuring that they actually retain it and use it correctly. And that's really where I'm going with all of this as a development of an officer. And if you are in a position of officer instruction or officer development for cadets at OTS or ROTC or even at the academy, that you play a role in that. Your people are not just a, a deposit account at a bank where you just go drop in some information and it stays there until you pull it out again. It it doesn't work that way, but you as the officer have a responsibility to work with them, not only to learn the information, but to demonstrate it, to retain it, to put it into practice in a correct way. It's ultimately your, your responsibility throughout that entire process. Yes. They have to take some ownership of it too. Right. But always, when I have those instances where I'm thinking about what went wrong or what happened, my first question is, well, what did I do? The first question is always, well, was I doing everything? And I try to run through that. And I'll also ask whoever, my airmen, my cadets, what could I have done differently to help you? Nine times out of 10, they're like, oh, nothing, sir. You did everything. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're full of crap. When I leave here, you probably got plenty. And that's what I want to know. You know, write me a note. Like, I got some pretty thick skin for the most part. I I can handle being told if they feel like they're not getting what they need from me. So don't be scared. But that first question is always, what can I have done? Well, and you're saying that it's not just the first question. It's the second question. It's, It's the first question that you ask yourself. And then it's the second question that you ask your people. So assessing self and projecting yourself backwards. Yeah. And this kind of goes into what you've been explaining with how you develop your cadets. What is something that you know now that you wish you could tell airman Carlisle or cadet Carlisle, what is the advice that you would want to give them? Probably just, you need to buy in. 
You need to buy into what we're trying to do, what the mission is. Like I said, I had a very selfish me viewpoint as a young airman. And uh, if I could change anything, it would probably have been that. How do my actions affect others? I need to be bought into the mission so that way I can support everybody else. I was bought in and selfish reasons on how well I wanted to do because I performed well. But that performance was self-motivated through what I wanted to achieve, not what the mission was trying to achieve. So I really wasn't doing a lot to help others around me perform at the same level that I was performing. Not because I I thought I'm going to outshine everybody. That wasn't the thing. It was just, I just figured, you know, if everybody else wants to perform, they'll perform too. Whatever. I'm going to take care of me. So early me, I would say, you know, buy in. If you don't like it, you have to figure out why you don't like it. Right. And then is it something that you have control over or is it something that, you know, you don't, and if you don't have any control over it, don't let that bother you. And then try and focus on something that you do have control over to, to get better. And then also take on opportunities. I didn't take on a lot of opportunities as a young airman uh, for certain schools and things like that. Cause I wasn't sure where I was going, where I was going to take this career field. But then as I progressed on through my career, I was like, man, I wish I would have went to that school when they gave it to me. That would have opened up way more doors or man, I would have learned so much more if I would have done that. So take on those opportunities. Don't shy away just because it doesn't fit in your schedule. Cause you think you're so busy cause you got this and that going on. Cause as a young leader, as a young airman, as a young officer, and if you're not married with zero kids, I promise you, you got plenty of time. You got plenty of time on your hands to do some great opportunities. And as your life gets even more complicated and as people start to take on more responsibilities, you can still find time if you really want to do it. If you challenge yourself, um, it's never going to be easy. So you got to challenge yourself. Like, shoot, dude, we're off today, but we're doing a podcast for what? It has nothing to do with us. This is no monetary. This doesn't do anything for our careers. It doesn't do anything for us, really, besides just trying to put that little bit of extra effort into helping other people understand the importance of what we do as Air Force officers and trying to buy in early as a culture, right? So, you know, those are things. Like, I woke up this morning. I'm like, oh, man, let me get a coffee. I didn't sleep good last night, right? Trying to come up with any excuse and I mean, I even texted you. I said, man, let's try and push this to the right at 930 because I was going to try and hit that snooze button. But then I was like, I lay there for a second. I said, nah, F that. (laughs) Slay's been trying to get me on. I said, man up, get out of this bed right now. Go make some coffee. And that's what I text you. What, like two minutes later, I was like, disregard. I'm ready. You know what I mean? So, you know, it always applies to something, you know, push yourself, get your butt up and go do it. Just get it done and make it happen. We've talked about this on the podcast many times before is that this is not just a job. This is a profession and it is all encompassing. It is a 24, seven, 365 type of gig that just like you said, even today, which is Martin Luther King day, the universities are closed. Today is not a duty day for us. And yet here we are talking about this profession and how we can be better officers ourselves, how we can help those who are already officers or those who are interested in becoming one, how they can become better. Because you and I are bought in. We believe in this. We believe in what the Air Force and the Space Force are all about, especially on the officer side. Yep. 
we want this country safe for our kids and our kids' kids and their kids' kids. And continue on with this tradition. And it only happens if people step up to the plate and buy in, you know, early. So the earlier buy in, the better on for your career. The more progression that you're going to get and the more you're going to get to learn. Because those things that people don't want to do are just opportunities to learn more, man. Yeah, man. So we've touched on so many awesome topics. CJ, I really appreciate you coming on here, you know, sharing your experience, your, your expertise. So I've got two final questions for you. First one is if somebody wants to get in touch with you because they're interested in the space operations career field, they want to pick your brain about your time as an instructor in Air Force ROTC. How does someone reach you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'll be working still at UMass Amherst till July, and then I'll report to my next unit at Buckley. But that email address is probably the best. It's probably the one I check most frequently, and that's ccarlisle at umass.edu. And we'll link that in the show notes too. And if uh, you listen to the podcast later on and, and then you're like, hey, you know, I'm coming to Space Force or whatever, and you want to reach out to me and once I have better access to our dot mill accounts, you can also reach me at Christopher.carlisle.2 at us.af.mil. There's another Christopher Carlisle in the Air Force. Uh, apparently. I don't know how that worked. I haven't, I haven't met him, but, but I should be the only captain that you find when you pull it up on the global. As far as I know. You are on Facebook. You're part of the Facebook group right now. So listeners of the podcast can also find you there too. Absolutely. Yep. You can find me in the Facebook group and uh, just hit me up. Like just send me a message and say, Hey, I listened to the podcast on commission ED and uh, I don't accept random people's friend requests on Facebook. CJ, will you be my friend? Absolutely. Forever. Awesome. Forever. Slade, you know that brother. Facebook official. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right, CJ. So my last question here for you, what does it mean to be an officer? Oh man, everything, right? To me, what it means to be an officer is to set your airmen up for success in whatever success career path that they want to take. Um, Make sure that they don't make the same mistakes that you made and do everything you can to recognize them when they need to be recognized. As far as me being an officer, that's it. Like To me, leadership is about taking care of my people, and it always will be. So, you know, if I can help my airmen, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what being an officer is about, right? Executing the mission obviously is going to come with that, but taking care of your people. Love it. Well, thanks, CJ. Is there anything else that you want to leave for our listeners? Man, if they're still listening, I feel like I probably bored the crap out of them. So thank you so much for having me on. I think this is awesome what you're doing. It speaks volumes to you as a leader on putting this effort into it. I think it's great, and I'm just thankful to be a part of it. And if they have any feedback for me, obviously feel free to hit me up with that feedback as well. Hopefully I didn't say anything to make anybody upset. Or Nobody's going to be upset. You didn't drop a single F-bomb. That was difficult for me. <laughs> I had to be very cognizant of that. Yeah. No, we're all good. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Slade. Seriously. So what did you think of that second part there, Reed? What do you think about CJ's experience in becoming an officer and what comes to your mind with regards to his experience there? Well, first, 
just how different OTS was when we went through, right? We both had the experience of an upper and lower class, but because of his prior experience, he didn't enjoy the upper class, lower class construct nearly as much as I think those of us who had zero military experience. And I think that experience was pretty universal. Colin, you and I have talked to a number of priors who went through that. And that seemed to be a huge distraction. And not only that, but it really detracted from the training. And as much as I think there were benefits to that process for OTS, I understand why they went away from it. And I think it's universally a better result. But yeah, I definitely thought about that. Yeah, so I'm trying to picture here in my mind, not that this happened because you weren't in the same class, but I'm picturing in my mind, here is upper class OT Gan, who is now responsible for the training and development of lower class OT Carlisle, because you were actually responsible for lower class training, correct? Yep, that's correct. I'm picturing in my mind, I mean, you had no prior military experience and here you are trying to tell this prior enlisted tech sergeant who, and security forces airmen at that to walk straight or breathe right or whatever. Yeah, here you go. So no lie, there was a prior enlisted PJ in my lower class, Silver Star, who had jumped into combat and so had what's called a mustard stain on his jump wings. So if you have jumped into combat, the star above your jump wings is authorized to be gold and it's called a mustard stain. That's a pretty freaking big deal. We haven't done that a whole lot. He was also a mountain of a person. So here I am. I'm, I'm a diminutive individual. I'm not the largest person out there. 5'8 on a good day maybe 165 pounds after we've thrown you in the pool and uh he was much bigger than me and had literally done it you know had been in it and yeah he was in my lower class yeah i was keenly aware colin keenly aware of my inadequacies and so was he (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think the danger i think where it went sideways is if people were not self-aware enough to recognize. And I actually recall a moment pulling that individual aside and saying, hey, we get it. We respect you. This is part of the game. This is my training just as much as it is yours. Help me help you. And we can both grow together. You know, so it had its pros and cons, but yeah, oof, I was aware. I was aware of my inadequacies, Colin. Yeah. And good for you on having that self-awareness and, and taking the time to talk to him. It's just such a comical thing to imagine in my mind and it was comical in reality (laughs) promise (laughs) one of the biggest things i'm thinking about is all this space force stuff man there is so much going on right now if you're paying attention on social media and reddit others i mean there are active polls right now that the air force is listening to to determine what we're going to call these people spacemen, astronauts, sentinels, guardians. I mean, the list goes on. Who knows, right? We are literally in a moment of history right now. We're defining an entire new branch of the military, and we don't even know what we're going to call them. And he mentioned that he's not in the Space Force, right? He's still in ROTC. But when he goes back to the operational Air Force as a 13 Sierra Space Operations, he is going to be pulled over probably immediately or very soon thereafter to become 
a part of the Space Force. It's an exciting time. There's so much going on. I, I don't know. What are your overall thoughts on this Space Force stuff? Well, it's like what we're experiencing right now is exactly what happened after World War II, right? In 1947, the creation of the Air Force as it broke away from the Army, it was no longer the Army Air Forces, became its own separate branch. We are experiencing that exact same thing. It was at that time that the airmen that were in the Army Air Forces and the general officers that were taking the senior leadership reins of the development of this new force got to really sink their teeth into what do we want this branch to be? What do we want the culture to be like? What do we want? It's not just about the capability. It's about defining a way of life and a way of being for the people who enter that branch. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting, exciting, terrifying bit about this whole thing. They're talking about what their song's going to be. They're talking about what their uniform and rank structure and culture and all this stuff. And there is institutional inertia and it's hard for us to break away from what we've known and what has worked for us and what has defined our service for more than 70 years. It's just interesting. And the only thing I can say really definitively about the Space Force is I don't know that it's for me. I definitely feel that I identify as an airman when I think about problem sets. I think about them from that perspective. And maybe I'm limited in that way. Maybe those that have a bigger picture are those who probably should be moving over to the Space Force. At any rate, I think it's exciting. And I'm glad guys like CJ are going to be the ones to go in there and define it. What an opportunity. And, you know, I can't think of a better guy to go in there and kind of set the culture from the beginning. Yeah. It's good that there are people like you who have what we call air-mindedness, just like it's critical for those who are in the army to have, I don't know if they call it land-mindedness, but kind of that idea of they're focused on the land, you're focused on the air, the Navy is focused on the sea, the Marines are focused on being angry, and now we are going to have a separate force whose entire being is focused on how do we use this thing called space to ensure the safety of the American people and the achievement of our national security objectives. Now, you say that you identify more with the Air Force and that idea of air-mindedness, I actually identify more with the space guys. My original intention coming into the Air Force was I wanted to be a developmental engineer and go work with NASA and be a rocket scientist. That was my goal. And so I'm actually very interested at the possibility of transferring services. I don't know exactly how that would work out with my current AFSC as a civil engineer, but I'm eyeing opportunities for cross-training so that I can be part of the Space Force as it continues to develop into the future. No, that's awesome. And I, again, I know it's not for me, but if it's for you, go for it. I think that's fantastic. So question, is the mission of the Air Force going to change? Or because the Space Force is a part of the Department of the Air Force, are we going to retain airspace and cyberspace? Well, see, the, the Department of the Air Force doesn't have a mission. 
well it does but it's not defined like the air force mission is defined okay so yeah well let's back up will the mission of the air force change you know will space be removed from that i think it would have to isn't the space force part of the air force or is you know what i'm saying i know it's semantics and we're kind of you know talking past each other here but this is all part of it right um and then the next question I have, and this is obviously for people who make much more money than you and I, is cyber next? And if so, when? I was actually really surprised that space happened before cyber did. Yeah, actually, that was kind of what I was thinking is how can you, at this point, how can you keep cyber from being its own independent service? I don't think you can because cyber is its own domain. It is not land. It is not air. It is not space. It is not water it is not angry it is it's in between all of those things it's its own domain and so i think that it can and should be its own independent service and once they figured out how to do it with the space force i think the cyber force or whatever they choose to call it is going to be quickly behind yeah one of the things that's challenging right when we talk about separating the services and what their domains are. And we should probably explain that idea of domain to some of the audience who may not understand that. If you were to take a stab at a domain, Colin, what would be a good way to to describe that? Yeah, well, I kind of already have alluded to it. A domain is a battle space or a location, geographical or otherwise, something that you can define wherein the use of force is applied. The army does it in the 2D battle space of land, of you know, earth, f- dirt, underneath your feet. Got it. Yep. And the Navy, I think, is the next easiest one, right? That's defined as the sea and power coming from out of below the sea. The Marines are in the transition zone, right, between the sea and the land. And the air, we've basically owned everything above eh, 5,000 feet, right? We basically own all of that. Space, I think, is a little bit harder to define as a domain than cyber, in my opinion. That's just me. You know, where does space start and air stop? I'm, I'm sure some scientist out there is going to tell me whether, yeah, got it. But I don't know. I think cyber is a little bit easier because it's completely man-made. We built it. It's very straightforward what it looks like, what it feels like. At least it is to me. It's a little squishy, right? That's something you've used in the past. It's a little bit squishy for me. Yeah, and another thing is that these other domains, land, air, and sea, are a place where a human regularly goes and where combat operations actually take place. Or you can send a man to space. You can imagine, you know, Star Wars happening, spacecraft flying around, shooting each other, explosions out in outer space. But when it comes to cyberspace, no man is ever going to get into cyberspace. So how do you define that domain? How do you define combat operations where flesh and blood are not directly on the line, right? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing. And who knows what the future holds in the next 5, 10, 50 years. But it's definitely an exciting time. Yeah, and we get to be part of that. I mean, I can't imagine that it's going to take more than 5, 10, or even 15 years 
to get the Space Force fully up and running and to the point where it's like fully defined and the culture is starting to take root and all of the lessons learned from doing that are in place so that they can do the same for cyberspace or for cyber force or whatever. So we get to be here to see that. At least that's what I imagine what will happen. Yeah. Exciting stuff. What other thoughts did you have from, you know, the second part of CJ's interview? So the main thing that I uh, continue to wonder about, and I asked the question of CJ and it goes right in line with our conversation now about the space force. You know, CJ definitely has a warrior ethos. He's prior enlisted security forces and he's been in a position as an Air Force ROTC instructor where he's able to impart some of that knowledge and that warrior ethos into his cadets. Like we were just talking, the air is still a domain where people fight. Life and limb, flesh and blood are on the line in the air. And I, I want to have this conversation again with CJ in the future. How do we teach warrior ethos to those that are coming up and are going to join the Space Force? When you can't see your enemy directly and when your own life is not on the line because of your engagement with the enemy, how do you train, how do you develop warrior ethos in the space environment? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting question, and I'll offer a bit of an opinion. I think we're already a lot of the way there in the Air Force, because let's think about a nuclear operator, right? The guy's sitting down in the missile silo. They can't see their enemy. They will absolutely and can absolutely employ lethal means, but for them, it's a screen. Let's talk about the RPA community. Yes, they can see those people and individuals and vehicles and sites and locations, but they're not real to them as much as they are to the person on the ground, right? If they're looking at a screen, yet they're absolutely warriors, they're going to employ lethal force. So I think the Air Force has been going that way for a while. You could even think about fighter pilots using beyond visual range tactics. They can and do and have the capability to shoot down aircraft that they can't physically see. So I think the Air Force is uniquely positioned to help give lessons learned and to be the parent, if you will, of the Space Force in that regard. How they will take that on and what that culture will look like and what training mechanisms they will use. I'm not sure it'll be too drastically different from what we already do now. But yeah, definitely an interesting question. And I am curious to see how they move forward with it. Yeah, the ability to project force using nuclear weapons or dropping bombs from aircraft 30,000 feet in the sky, or even just the ability to be a thousand yards away using a high-powered sniper rifle with a scope. This is a principle called mechanical and physical distance that enables killing and the use of force and is addressed fully in Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's book on killing. I mentioned that book in our first episode, uh, bring it up again here because I think it's applicable to our discussion. Yes, the, the Air Force is very good at teaching warrior ethos 
through the lens of mechanical and physical distance. But I think that the space force and the cyber force or cyberspace, the use of force through those domains is a little bit different in that they are not necessarily kinetic in nature. I mean, certainly there can be and probably are, I don't know, because they're classified ways of delivering kinetic force through space, but cyber is not a kinetic use of force. It is digital. It is, uh, I don't even have the vocabulary to describe it. So I don't know that the way that the Air Force is currently teaching warrior ethos in its commissioning programs and through BMT is going to have the same effect and application for the Space Force and cyberspace or whatever it becomes in the future. Yeah, totally fair. It's interesting stuff. And so saying that, if the Department of the Air Force and its commissioning sources are going to be the source of officers for the Space Force and whatever cyber becomes, then I think our commissioning sources, the Air Force Academy, ROTC, and OTS will have to adapt and find a way to teach warrior ethos in such a way that is going to be effective for the Space Force and cyber. Yeah, I can get behind that. It is going to be interesting. I don't know what it's going to look like. Anything else, Colin, before we call this one a wrap? Want to once again say thanks to CJ for sharing his time and his uh, experiences with us. Clearly, both you and I have learned quite a bit from what he said in his interview and the discussion that we've had here. We hope that the same is true for all of you, our audience. And once again, we invite you to share this information, these episodes with your friends, your family, anybody that you feel will benefit from it, either because they are an officer in the Air Force or soon to be in the Space Force or someone who is interested in joining the Department of the Air Force in either capacity sometime in the future. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. 